Welcome to The Metabolic Link, a podcast that explores the common thread of metabolism in health and disease. This is where science meets society. Welcome back to another episode of The Metabolic Link podcast. Today, we have a great interview with Dr. Ben Bickman. Dr. Bickman earned his PhD in bioenergetics. He then went on uh, to do a postdoctoral fellowship at Duke National University of Singapore in metabolic disorders. Uh, he's now a tenured professor at the Brigham Young University and investigates the regulation and dysregulation of insulin signaling, including the relevance to fat oxidation, ketone production, and mitochondrial function. Uh, we discussed a range of topics here in this podcast. Uh, it includes measuring adipose insulin resistance, uh, looking at free fatty acids in the blood, which is often not talked about. Uh, we talk about basic science research. We talk about practical approaches to managing and preventing insulin resistance. Uh, we had a great discussion. I am excited to share this content with you and thank you for following. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I was very inspired and educated by your talk at Low Carb USA. And in particular, you had uh, a number of graphs throughout your presentation that representing uh, data that uh, from your lab probably, but also from the, the published literature, uh, which is very interesting to me. It's, it's been a topic in our medical education, the, uh, the importance of fasting insulin and how insulin becomes elevated. And that's a precursor to hyperglycemia. And you had a, a nice chart. So mm -hmm. I would like for you to, uh, if you wouldn't mind, kind of walk us through uh, what you were representing in the graphs. We, we don't have the graphs here available. Maybe we yeah. can get it. Uh, in the show notes, we'll we'll have um, if you've had that published somewhere online, you know we'll link to it. But I would first and foremost, I would like you to kind of walk us through um, the chronologically what happens in regards to insulin resistance and and what insulin does too. In particular, as we age, in your graph, uh, and this is something of, of high interest to me as we age that decrease in insulin, how insulin levels sort of tank as we, as it passes a, a certain threshold mm -hmm. later. Yeah. Life. Yeah. Yeah. This is a nice way to start because it allows me to uh, establish a common, a common definition of insulin resistance uh, because that, that was the, certainly the focus of my talk is that I believe that a lot of people are invoking insulin resistance uh, incorrectly because they just don't properly understand what insulin resistance is. Insulin resistance is a phenomenon with two facets uh, that you cannot pull apart. There is, there's, I've, I'm unaware of any exception to this, so I'm quite bold in, in how I say it. But insulin resistance is both the expected um, reduced signaling, where the hormone insulin isn't quite working the way it used to throughout the entire body. Now, that is not a universal effect. It's not that every cell of the body isn't responding to insulin anymore. But it, uh, some cells aren't responding as well. So I'm just kind of couching that in a vague insulin isn't working as well as it used to. So that's the insulin resistance part. And that's a cell-specific phenomenon. But of course, these cells are within the entire body, the entire organism. Mm -hmm. And within the entire body, we have another aspect to this, which is hyperinsulinemia. So the elevated insulin. That is what is so important. There is no such thing as insulin resistance 
without there being an accompanying, and I would say often preceding, hyperinsulinemia. And then that touches on that temporal aspect of your question, that if you're following an individual over their life, <clears throat> our metabolic view is very glucose-centric. And, and there is precedent for that. I don't criticize that we've had a glucose-centric paradigm. And I don't even mean to imply that it's wrong. Uh, I, For example, I'm an enormous advocate, and I know this is an advocacy you and I share with regards to the clinical utility of CGMs. <clears throat> and being able to constantly monitor glucose is a powerful tool because it's the dynamic nature of glucose that helps you get a better insight in, uh, into your metabolic health rather than just a fasting glucose test. But back to glucose, the average, and then touching on the temporality of this, as you alluded to, the average individual who's coming to their physician year in and year out, they will be gaining weight. They will have high blood pressure. Now they're on an antihypertensive medication. They may have some form of infertility in male or female. And the physician is only ever looking at the glucose levels. And because the glucose levels are staying in a decent range, they assume, well, there's no metabolic problem here. But mm -hmm. if we truly want to understand metabolic problems, we have to look at the hormone insulin because the glucose levels are themselves simply a symptom or a manifestation of disordered insulin action. And so and here's it's the not part of a standard comprehensive metabolic panel. So this that's, is a discussion right. we are having in our medical education. And even the students yeah. are kind of like very confused by that. So yeah, yeah fact, sorry I, to interrupt. I, I, yeah. Oh, no, no, I'm, I, I'm thrilled because it, with you and I both being professors who, yes, we do research, but we also teach classes. I just last week got done teaching lectures about metabolic syndrome and diabetes to my students. And I had, I was thrilled by how many questions from the students with regards to what well, was basically their, their befuddlement um, that, that we don't measure insulin more often. And, and so the fa I mean, the conversation is changing uh, and that is reflected also in the fact that I'm invited to give talks at grand rounds or CME um, meetings. Um, so I'm, I'm confident that the word is spreading, but it just reflects this skewed paradigm where we have a, we have conventionally, trained clinicians who just are really taught to look at glucose. But if they were to include an insulin measurement, they would have found that over the years, insulin has been getting higher and higher and higher. And this is reflective of insulin resistance, but it's enough insulin to keep the glucose in check. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, and so it remains clinically silent. And there is no, there's no thought that there's some metabolic uh, foundation to whatever other chronic disease we're looking at. Um, and that's why, of course, I beat that drum so loudly that we have to include insulin in, in this paradigm. We have to either broaden the focus or just ditch the fasting glucose entirely and just go to insulin. I'd be fine just broadening it, of course. But uh, it, it's, it's when there are now an additional handful of events, um, which includes the insulin resistance um, progresses to tissues like the alpha cells of the pancreas that release glucagon, and mm -hmm. it progresses to the liver. The liver becomes insulin resistant, and now we have dysregulated glycogenesis versus glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis. Yep. And then even the muscle, which is, of course, the main consumer, about 80% of the, of the postprandial glucose clearance when someone eats a starchy, sugary meal, it goes into the muscle. But then as the muscle becomes insulin resistant, 
it, its ability to pull in glucose is reduced by about 50%. So it goes down by half. And so you've lost the biggest glucose sink in, in, in the body. And so, and when you add, so not only do you combine the insulin resistance of those um, glucose um, focused tissues, but you combine that with the potential for some individuals to begin producing less insulin. That is, but, but that is, if I pause that thought for just a second, that is not an absolute. People speak about type 2 diabetes in these subjective qualitative terms, and they will say insulin is insufficient to control glucose. Well, technically, that's a correct statement, but it is also misleading because it makes it sound like their insulin levels have gone to zero or nearly zero. And if this is type 2 diabetes, that doesn't happen. It never happens. Even yeah. if the insulin levels start to come down a little, and they can, they're still multiples higher than where they used to be before they ever started on this pathway to poor metabolic health. So here's where they used to be. Then it went up to here. And in some people, it stays there. It's making 10 times more insulin at any moment, the beta yeah. cells. And then in some instances, it comes down, but it never bottoms out, not in type 2. That does not happen yeah. in type 2 diabetes. But suffice it to say, if we combine all of these variables, the insulin resistance at the glucose uh, managing tissues and uh, tendency to produce less insulin, now we have the glucose starting to change and potentially changing quite rapidly. And then it's only at that point within this glucose-centric paradigm that conventional clinical care will detect the problem. And now the clinical uh, uh, focus will include a conversation about uh, well, we got to control your your diabetes. We got to control your blood sugar levels. But even still, Dom, as much as the focus will have now included a metabolic component to it, conventional training wouldn't have shown um, what is so obvious to many of us. That is that this patient's preceding health problems, the hypertension, maybe the migraine headaches, maybe the infertility are all to varying degrees impacted, if not directly caused by this insulin resistance that has been lingering in the background for the for potentially decades, you know, before the glucose ever starts to climb. So, so hey, the ben, focus on insulin. Yeah. Let's yeah. stop there because I want to address the different like disorders associated with the insulin. But I'm, I was just like super engaged by your the presentation of the chronological, what you just really nicely explained. Is there human data? My colleague, uh, Dr. Barbara Hansen, uh, who's worked along with like uh, Gerald Schulman and, and others, like really uh, one of the leaders in, in understanding like insulin physiology. Uh, she's got a lot of data she's collected on non-human primates and the data is not published yet, but it actually looks just like your graph. You know, she's putting it together and, and she's got a, a mountain of data. Um, so was there any, was there a particular publication where you uh, showed that data? Because I haven't come across, and I should know mm -hmm. this, where it shows, you know, the chronological, and I know there's bits and pieces of data, but um, but I've never saw it represented or presented in the way that that you did. Is there a yeah. good go-to go publication that kind of has uh, the representative uh, figure, like mm -hmm. data that, that that's associated with that figure? Yeah, maybe you yeah, had that, it in, in the talk, but I didn't. No, didn't no, I don't think I cited. Um, uh -huh. So that's a figure that I've used as a teaching model. But 
I adopted and adapted it from a publication from a, you might've met him. Um, and I bet people have heard of him. Uh, he's a pediatric endocrinologist and, and his name was Jake. His name is Jake Kushner. I'll try to find oh, that yeah, yeah. manuscript uh -huh. so that we yeah. can include. So he yeah. had put together a figure one time in one of his review articles that he published a few years ago, and it showed that paradigm. And that's mm -hmm. why I felt so confident, especially, Dom, especially on the um, the, the early part of it, I, I don't think would be controversial at all, that, that insulin's climbing before the glucose starts to climb. And then yeah. it was this idea that even if the insulin starts to come down, in type two diabetes, it does not go to zero, and uh, and that's yeah. so important. Uh, what age though? So yeah, uh, yeah. So that was right. So with an aged animal, for example, non-human primate, I think uh, the data it's like almost like you you got a hold of this idea before it was kind of even published. Is that uh, in non-human primates? It's not published yet, but it, it goes up. It looks very much like the the graph that you displayed. And then it starts to taper off and go down and then it tails down, but that sort of hyperglycemia remains. And mm -hmm. it's almost like the, uh, the beta cells got, got burnt out. Although, you know, that that's more of a, not, not every, many physiologists may not agree with that, but there's an age dependent decrease in, in insulin, you know, associated mm -hmm. with type two diabetes, which could, could lead to like uh, insulin dependent type two diabetes, but it's, yep. but it's, you know, that you may have not kind of captured, maybe it's more like early age and middle age, but, you know, in advanced age, uh, I think in non-human primates, it, it'll, insulin starts to tank later on. That's yeah. a, it could be a consequence of just, you know, what, what you've been talking about, which is another consequence of insulin resistance is just, you know, beta cell burnout. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Dom, I wish I could cite a specific decade. Um, I don't even think Jake Kushner identified a decade. It was a bit of a vague outline, just like I'd had. I, if I had to guess, and, and I will, I'd say it was about in the sixties, um, within that the decade of, of people being in their sixties. But interestingly, mm -hmm. Even then, when beta cell number starts to go down, there are human studies to show that with dietary intervention, I would include that. I would um, add nuance to that by saying um, interventions that improve insulin sensitivity, although they were not as good as I considered. The intervention they used was just a, an old-fashioned kind of low-energy diet, which does resolve insulin resistance. I just – take issue with the fact that I don't believe such a view is sustainable when it's just lower energy and it's this battle for energy. I think it stimulates hunger and then hunger will win, but um, that's yeah. a little beside the point. But they found in type 2 diabetics, even as beta cell mass starts to go down, which I would say is not a bad thing. After all, beta cell mass expanded significantly during this these decades of hyperinsulinemia. So when when we say that and and you know you're not unique using this term that when we say beta cells burn out um in other words we just have a loss of some of the numbers of the beta cells I actually do not consider that to be the problem that many do if anything it's putting them back closer to where they used to be and I think there's an opportunity there because in conventional clinical care, you know, insulin's been coming up, they're insulin resistant, insulin may start to go down, and then the glucose levels start to go up. Um, because the, the conventional model is only looking at the glucose, um, that view then justifies pushing the insulin up even higher and giving the type 2 diabetic insulin therapy. And that begins, that's almost 
that that uh, increases the descent. They will start to gain weight much more rapidly. Their metabolic rate slows significantly. It's something people don't appreciate. And insulin slows metabolic rate. And that, of course, amplifies weight gain. And they become more and more insulin resistant. And, and Dom, importantly, the more insulin a type 2 diabetic needs to keep their glucose in an acceptable range, even though the glucose is in an acceptable range, with all of that insulin, which is so pathogenic, they're three times more likely to die from heart disease. And, and so that just reflects the problem that this is not a glucose problem. These are, this is an insulin problem. And the more we're pushing the insulin up, the more we are pushing them towards poor health. It, it's, I've used this before, but it's, it's analogous. Giving a type 2 diabetic insulin is like giving an alcoholic another glass of wine hoping it will cure their alcoholism. You're giving them more of the very substance that's driving the problem. Now I'm shifting the conversation a little and I'm touching on the origins of insulin resistance and I won't yeah, go any further yeah. than that. I won't go further than that. Suffice it to say, too much insulin promotes insulin resistance. Let's talk about defining it too. And then I wanna talk about uh, maybe some ways to manage it uh, in regards. Well, I guess maybe take a step back are there any are there any situations where uh, insulin resistance acutely or chronically uh, some degree of insulin resistance could be beneficial? So is uh, I guess stated another way is insulin resistance always pathological or can we have insulin resistance that could be just for acute amount of time or mm -hmm. chronically uh, can can that be non pathological and can it potentially even be beneficial in, in some mm -hmm. contexts. So yeah, this is yeah. a, a point well, of contention questions. and confusion that I always get, I get the question a lot. So um, I'm yeah. deferring to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so you and I have heard this um, debate somewhat, and that's yeah. because we're in the low carb kind of ketogenic space in, in a, in a kind of pop culture space, even if not in a scientific realm, although we both yeah. are too, but yeah, there's a lot of debate on, uh, I will never forget uh, a few years ago when I first heard people within the kind of keto or, or or people who criticize it or even comment on it, noting that, well, a ketogenic diet causes physiological insulin resistance. And I was I thought that was just the oddest thing among many odd things we hear these days. But yes, there are instances in through human development um, where we call an insulin resistance physiological rather than pathological. You know, all of the insulin resistance you and I have been discussing up until this point is pathological insulin resistance mostly. But even still within this conversation, um, some of what I've described applies to physiological insulin resistance. But suffice to say, physiological insulin resistance is a state when the body becomes insulin resistant to serve a purpose. And that purpose is always and invariably to promote growth. Because if you can create an insulin resistant um, profile or phenotype, all of that insulin and its selective insulin resistance, but remember, it's still insulin sensitive at other, at other tissues, it collectively creates uh, a body that is promoting more anabolism, more growth. And that is, that is utterly essential to the two Ps of physiological insulin resistance, pregnancy and puberty. During both of those instances, all accompanied by hyperinsulinemia because there's no such thing as insulin resistance without hyperinsulinemia, even in physiological, 
those bodies, whether it's mother's body trying to grow fat or develop mammary tissue or grow a placenta, even the fetus benefiting from this, or whether it's the young preteen adolescent who needs to go through the most dramatic period of growth in their life, regardless, both of those are instances of massive rapid growth, and a generally insulin-resistant body facilitates that. And again, it is not harmful. There are, there are times when I describe the insulin resistance of pregnancy, and I'll have someone say, well, how can I mitigate that? And I say, you don't want to mitigate it. Well, you couldn't if you tried. It would be utterly incompatible with, with the, the pregnancy if you blocked it. Um, but of course, we don't want it to go too far. Otherwise, we the, the gal shifts over from physiological insulin resistance of pregnancy into gestational diabetes, of course, which is, again – this is, I mean, that same state I outlined before. In a healthy pregnant woman, her glucose levels are normal, but her insulin levels are elevated, reflecting insulin resistance. And then it's if she becomes so resistant to insulin, I would say largely due to a combination of genetics and dietary influence. Now she's so resistant to her insulin that she can't control her glucose anymore. Now we say she has gestational diabetes. So yeah, a resounding yes. There are instances of physiological insulin resistance, but a low-carb or ketogenic state is not one of them. So in at, you also um, discussed in adolescence uh, and during growth that insulin, what is the magnitude, and I meant to look that up, uh, what is the magnitude of elevated insulin in uh, growing kids or I guess in adolescence where hormones are pretty jacked up and yep. you're, you know, you're allocating your uh, more macronutrients to growth and development and, and it's more of a hormone driven thing where your body, I, I thought is more, more sensitive to things like IGF one. And mm-hmm. I would think more sensitive to insulin and because that would facilitate, but so do you have through adolescence, you, you showed uh, elevated insulin or you talked about, you know, this, this, you know, dramatically elevated insulin levels through adolescence, but is that also accompanied by uh, insulin resistance or an increase in insulin sensitivity? Because I I associate like an increase in insulin sensitivity to greater muscle growth and development. So maybe mm-hmm. kind of disentangle some of that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So again, Dom, the, I don't believe these are incompatible ideas. Uh, remember, because some tissues still respond sens- sensitively to insulin, and in in yeah. in that case. Like, for example, bone. To my knowledge, bone does not become insulin resistant in the adolescent. Um, And and indeed, all that hyperinsulinemia can promote greater bone growth. And the hyperinsulinemia can defend protein synthesis. There was actually a study from the 80s finding that insulin, rather than promoting muscle protein synthesis, it appeared that its main mechanism of action was defending or inhibiting proteolysis, so defending muscle protein. But yeah, yeah, so so some of the tissues are not responding as well, and this can be manifest in um, euglycemic hyperinsulinemic clamps um, uh, within the adolescent body, so we can measure a, a reduced overall responsiveness to insulin. But again, it's not a global phenomenon. Some tissues respond perfectly well. To the insulin as they did before. So what what's the average insulin level in like a 15 or 16 year old relative to, you know, a mm-hmm. 25 year old? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say in a healthy individual, you know, because it skews, of course, if we're talking about a very insulin resistant kind of pre-diabetic or type two diabetic person, then they're just going too high. If we took a healthy individual who had a healthy fat mass 
because that's so important to all of this. Their insulin levels as a child would be in, in a healthy range, kind of maybe around 10. And then in that range, you just 10 microunits. In the span you just mentioned, um, in the kind of mid-teens, like right when growth is, is peaked and, and peaking and then about to come down, I would expect insulin levels should normally be in the mid to high teens. And then after that, they have grown. They're done making fat cells for the most mm -hmm. part. Um, and then they've reached adulthood. Insulin levels will come down and then should settle back down to under 10. So uh -huh. it can almost double during puberty and then it should come back down. Uh-huh. If so even their fasting insulin is oh yeah elevated. So that's really interesting. Uh in regard, I heard you talk somewhere about insulin uh I or adipose IR looking at so do you in your lab, maybe you could describe some of the experiments that mm -hmm. you do in your lab and animal model systems and also maybe the the human study uh, uh -huh. that you're doing and talk about how you the methodologies you use to measure uh, insulin resistance in the lab. Yeah. Yeah. So this is um, maybe the, yeah, the adipo IR score or index is maybe my favorite one of all of them in part, because I believe it reflects insulin resistance at its earliest stages, because I very much have a, the, a, the view that the first tissue to become insulin resistant is likely going to become, is going to be the fat tissue. Now, the truth is, depending on the stimulus, other tissues can become insulin resistant either simultaneously or maybe even before. But I think in the run-of-the-mill average individual, it's going to be the fat cell that becomes insulin resistant. And so, so again, one reason I like that test is that it measures the insulin resistance at the fat cell. And then two, it's such an elegant reflection of nutrient biochemistry and the importance of hormones. Uh, it's something I kind of rail against as a professor, where I have students who have been taught all of this really cool nutrient biochemistry, and yet they don't realize that hormones totally dictate um, which nutrient pathways turned on or turned off. And so, so the adipose IR index is a measurement of both fasting insulin and free fatty acids. And free fatty acids or non-esterified, also yep. termed like okay, because that's a that's term right. we use in our in our teaching. Yeah, yeah, N yeah. NEFA. Yeah, typically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So non-triglycerides. Yeah. yeah, and that's, yeah, that's people right. like non. There, is there a commercial test for non-esterified fatty acids and the adipose IR you're talking about? So. Yep. Yep. There is. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, I don't know of a, an insurance that would ever pay for it. It's yeah. not a cheap test either. Um, but we've been doing it in the human study that we've been doing with Levels. Um, mm -hmm. So so Levels Health uh, sponsored a study that we were doing in my lab where we were quantifying and are we're just finishing it. We've been quantifying the um, endocrine response to macronutrients um, in, in the context of people on low-carb diets. So these were all, all the patients were adhering to a low-carb diet, and they had the CGM that they could wear for the month of this study provided by Levels with the app um, to kind of for us to monitor them and then very acutely determine any glycemic response to the macronutrients. But we would pull blood every 30 minutes for two hours, and then we're measuring about 15 separate hormones, GLP-1, glucagon, insulin, cortisol, epinephrine, a bunch. Um, and generally, uh, and and free fatty acids as well, so that we can do this adipose IR score, the adipose IR score. But in a healthy individual, typically, um, and this reflects the metabolic flexibility, you know, that at any moment we're primarily relying on glucose or we're primarily relying on fats. Insulin largely dictates which of those fuels is being used. And if a person is insulin sensitive, 
when insulin goes up, insulin would promote more glucose burning and it would reduce overall fat mobilization and lipolysis. So if yeah. insulin is up in a healthy person, free fatty acids should be down because insulin inhibits lipolysis or non-esterified fatty acids. Um, they should be down because insulin is inhibiting lipolysis of the fat cells. So all of those fats mm -hmm. stay bound up as triglycerides within the lipid droplet of the adipocyte. In a healthy person, when they're fasting or generally avoiding starches and sugars, then insulin comes down. And, and now this would reflect, uh, it would result in an increase in free fatty acids because lipolysis is no longer inhibited. And the body is relying more on fats for fuel in the absence or in, in yep. this relatively reduced insulin state. So this dynamic should be at play. If insulin's up, free fatty acids down. If insulin's down, free fatty acids up, unless the fat cells are insulin resistant. And then that anti-lipolytic effect of insulin doesn't work anymore. Now you have this, this unnatural state where both insulin is high and free fatty acids. And that's what that index measures. And it is relevant. There was a fascinating study in young women with polycystic ovary syndrome who did not meet any obvious clinical metric of insulin resistance. But then the scientists, in other words, they were generally normal body weight. They didn't have you know, dramatically elevated fasting insulin or their, their HOMA score was normal. But when they measured the insulin and the free fatty acids and computed them together, they were significantly higher. That overall formula was significantly higher than in their uh, equally body weight control group. You know, so same body type, same body mass, and yet no PCOS in those women, their adipose IR score was significantly lower. And I think that's further evidence that this is a problem that starts in the fat cells, even if it hasn't manifested throughout the rest of the body. Once the fat cells become insulin resistant, it's the first domino to fall. And then it's just a matter of time before it starts yeah. tipping over into other tissues. Very interesting. So I've, I've never heard people talk about this test, and it seems like it's extremely relevant and important to understanding insulin resistance. Any uh, temporal relationship, uh, inverse or proportional uh, of triglycerides to, uh, to insulin? So mm -hmm. and, and how uh, in a fasted state... For example, how does that shift triglycerides uh, relative to, to this test? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you and I have both seen this. Um, triglycerides are one of the fastest responders to carbohydrate restriction. Um, so triglycerides will just mm -hmm. plummet dramatically. I actually consider triglycerides to be perhaps the single best lipid marker of heart disease. As much as we have focused on LDL for now decades, I, I'm very, um, I consider that to be very unfortunate because LDL is a terrible predictor of heart attack yeah. um, and, and heart disease risk. And I think triglycerides is a better marker. Now the question is, well, why not look at triglycerides? This is a bit of a cynical take, Dom, and you'll pardon me for expressing it. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons we don't measure triglycerides more often is because we don't have a drug that can specifically target triglycerides like we yeah. do with say LDL. But But even then, reflective of insulin's almost dictatorial ability to control fuel metabolism, um, nutrient metabolism within the whole body. Insulin controls not only the measure of free fatty acids through lipolysis, but insulin also controls lipogenesis, the formation of new fat. And when we look at how insulin stimulates lipogenesis in the liver, promoting the synthesis of triglycerides, 
and then packaging those triglycerides into the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins of VLDL and LDL, mm -hmm. you know, the main transporters of triglycerides through the plasma. It's no surprise that insulin will dramatically increase triglycerides. Uh, and, and that, I believe, is maybe the most relevant variable with regards to heart disease risk, or at least the best predictor. And, and again, no surprise, given that insulin provides such a push for triglyceride synthesis, when insulin starts to come down through fasting and lifestyle interventions, triglycerides will come down very rapidly as well. And, and some of the extent to which this can happen is truly mind-boggling. I saw an exchange <clears throat> between David Unwin that, you know, kind of uh, English gentleman um, physician yeah. mm -hmm. that we all know and love. He was one time jokingly bragging about how he had a patient whose triglyceride levels went from something like 800 in the course of just eight or so weeks down to like 60. Um, yeah. and, and just these fantastic reductions all because when insulin, it, but mind you, Dom, this is in the yeah. midst of the person possibly eating more fat than they've ever been eating. Yeah, You know, it, it's just because it's not, um, triglycerides in the body are not a, a reflection of of what fat is being consumed, but rather what fat is being produced. It's what's mm -hmm. coming from the liver and insulin will push mm -hmm. that. Insulin will dictate that. I have a colleague uh, that I'm not going to mention him by name, but but you know him, I think, that, that has has been low carb for you know about a decade and his triglycerides are, are stuck right about 160 which is, you know, not astronomically high. And mm -hmm. it's a, it needs to be uh, considered in context coming from six to 800 <laughs> down mm -hmm, the 160. Mm -hmm. So the, the relative, but uh, very low carb, ketogenic, and the triglycerides are persistently uh, at about 160. And I believe insulin very low. So, you know, and that seems mm -hmm. kind of high to me relative to what I, I mean, I've gotten some trig measurements 32 was the lowest but usually i'm about like 50 something like mm -hmm. that uh 45 or 50 so uh in the context of some people and we had we did a, a levels actually sponsored a clinical trial with us where we've collected a lot of biomarkers and looking at glycemic variability and you know and, and absolutely insulin goes down with a low carb diet and triglycerides trend to go down but you have some people who looked like other biomarkers of metabolic health and even glycemic control are pretty good, but the triglycerides are hanging, some of them, you know, but they tend to be outliers. So I'm thinking that maybe there's some fatty acid oxidation, you know, SNP or something associated with, with you know, just they don't have as much of a robust, um, and it's not, you couldn't look at it, you couldn't look at them and, and determine that like you yeah know, the relatively lean individuals but with a with a triglyceride level it's a little well like, I, I wonder yeah yeah I, I I can only speculate here um part of the clearance of triglycerides is a function of lipoprotein lipase and yeah. I wonder whether some people have I mean we know that individuals have varying levels of lipoprotein lipase expression yeah. and 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 we can somewhat manipulate that through exercise and through dietary changes. Yeah. But I wonder what maybe there is a genetic um, predisposition to have relatively, you know, lower density or lower activity um, LPL. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. Or even it's even liver yeah, damage. It's, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, you know the ketogenic low carb diets tend to drop blood pressure too, and people can get off their blood pressure medication and beta blockers. So uh, 
epinephrine, norepinephrine, uh, you know, adrenaline tends to enhance hormone sensitive lipase. So the sympathetic nervous system. And I could see like as people get off as their blood pressure improved, and then they drop the beta blockers and you tend to see a corresponding uh, drop in those triglycerides. And conversely, when people get on a beta, blo a beta blocker, when they get on one, uh, you can see trigs spike up in some mm -hmm. people. So it's sort of blocking that sympathetic nervous system drive that yep. for an enhanced fat oxidation. And, you know, back in the day, I remember in college, like uh, the drug ephedrine, people would use mm -hmm. like ephedrine. It was like stimulant, very, very potent fat burner. Uh, that's a beta agonist. So beta blocker being a beta antagonist. So, um, yeah, it makes me think that maybe some some drugs, you know, could factor into that. One yeah. of the questions I had, does, do all cells, you mentioned bone, do all cells have insulin receptors? Yeah, yeah. So I, I've really asked myself that question and tried to find an exception. And I will state, I'll state it this way to be cautious and diplomatic. I have mm -hmm. not been able to find a single instance of a cell that does not have an insulin receptor. In other words, everything I've seen shows that literally every cell of the body including red blood cells who, you know, don't even have a mitochondria. They don't have GLUT4 of the glucose transporters, but even still they have, of course, GLUT4 expression doesn't have anything mm -hmm. to do with it, but they all have insulin receptors. Yeah. Okay. Very. And the relationship between insulin signaling and IGF-1 signaling, I taught this like 10 years ago and I, yeah. I kind of forget now, but I remember going through all the different pathways when I was teaching it and, and maybe just like a, a little, some comments on the, the crosstalk between insulin signaling and also IGF-1. And if, right. if those, that, that hormone sort of parallels uh, physiological levels of insulin. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That, so the last part of the question, Dom, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know. I can't off the top of my head, think of what IGF-1 levels are. It wouldn't surprise me if IGF-1 levels are higher than insulin at least in certain states but but yeah you're 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 prop you're right in noting that they have a tremendous redundancy or rather ability to cross signal and that's and that's even reflected in the name where insulin can bind IGF1 receptors IGF1 can bind and activate insulin receptors but that is not to say that they're perfectly aligned um, because overall with IGF1 stimulation from growth hormone one of the reasons i believe um, that growth promotes somewhat of an insulin resistant state is that growth hormone into a lesser degree IGF1 will will it is much more glycogenolytic it wants to mobilize glucose from the liver and so constantly pushing up glucose to to use that for fuel for growth whereas insulin of course um doesn't like the blood being flush with nutrients it wants to be storing nutrients whether it's using those nutrients for growth or just uh you know energy um, so with IGF-1, uh, yeah, the levels are going to be different, but they do cross-react with regards to their receptor. But I think that is such an important point, Dom, not to shift the topic, but I know that you've had talks with people who are very IGF-1 um, I was cautious. leading towards protein. <laughs> this is kind yeah, of like- Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I was kind of thinking, okay, how should I- oh, This is an important idea and I used to teach it and I, sh I should know mm -hmm. it more. Mm -hmm. I taught all the IGF-1 signaling and all the insulin signaling to first-year med students a while back. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so, and so this idea then, because I've interviewed various people on 
uh, protein and also protein restriction, the benefits of protein restriction. Uh, as we age, I'm not getting any younger. You know, I, I collect a lot of data. I could see my lean mass kind of <laughs> falling, falling over time. Uh, not what it used to be when I was in my 20s. And, you know, I do what I can to maintain strength, but I, I do have a pretty high protein. Well, I, I have increased my protein levels after revisiting some of the literature. And, uh, and I would like to get your take on protein level optimization, uh, not necessarily in the context of a low carb diet for any, any mm -hmm, diet. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, which I, I get, we get a lot of questions about plant-based proteins and verse animal-based proteins. People thinking that there are plant-based proteins are healthier. There's less toxins in them, but I think some data points to maybe some heavy metals and, and processed yep. plant-based proteins and things like that. So maybe your, uh, your thoughts on plant-based and plant-based fats and protein and animal-based fat and protein for the listener yeah. here. Yeah. And Dom, allow me, indulge me for just a second. Let me riff on the IGF-1 and insulin and, and how I believe it is relevant mm -hmm. to this conversation, but overlooked. Um, so a lot of the uh, these individuals who study longevity and generally promote a, a low protein diet, they, they do so if I may put words in their mouth and, and I don't, that might not be fair. I believe they do so because it's their view that dietary protein will um, stimulate mTOR in the body in cells. And if mTOR is activated, that will inhibit autophagy. And then now you're promoting cellular aging. That is certainly the justification for the use of rapamycin, which is a very strong mTOR inhibitor. So that's the idea that it, it sort of centralizes on that um, enzyme, the protein in the body, in, in the cell, the, that protein mTOR, that if they can, if they can turn down mTOR, now they yeah. disinhibit autophagy and then longevity would be promoted. That, that mm -hmm. is of course all based in, in animal studies. There's no, um, even they, even these individuals would admit there's no conclusive human evidence. The best we can come to with humans is kind of correlational, which, yeah. which, you know, you and I don't have a lot of tolerance for generally. Or, just to interject, or the idea of of during a time restricting feeding window, suppressing it mTOR for a period of time, IGF IGF one signaling and mTOR for a period of time, and then having a window of eating where mm -hmm. you spike it to regenerate protein, but to avoid the chronic elevation through you know multiple feedings of protein during the day or higher levels of protein yeah, uh, has yeah. been a, sort of a point of contention behind people who are protein experts <laughs> and then yeah. other people are advocating certain certain protein requirements. Yeah. Well, my, my view on it is that if someone is encouraging a restriction of protein because they believe that there's a therapeutic benefit to restricting mTOR activity, if, if it, again, to say that a slightly another, a, a, a different way, <clears throat> if the primary goal is to inhibit mTOR or keep it turned down more often than it's turned on, all the more reason to scrutinize the hormone insulin rather than amino acids. A study done in human, in, in muscle cells found that leucine, you know, the most anabolic mTOR stimulating of all leucine. the amino acids, mm -hmm. it, yes, it did activate mTOR, but it did not activate it as much as insulin did. Insulin stimulated mTOR much more dramatically than leucine did. And I think that to me, neither of those is inherently bad, but if lowering mTOR is the primary outcome, all the more reason to focus on insulin, because Dom, we both know it's the average individual 
who is living every waking moment in a state of elevated insulin, not constantly yeah. elevated, you know, leucine or amino acid. Um, and that's because we wake up in the morning, insulin has come down throughout night, the night. We spike it with a starchy, sugary breakfast. We do it again with a mid-morning snack, again at lunch, again in the afternoon, again at evening, et cetera. Every waking moment is spent in a state of elevated insulin. That is the problem. If, if, if the worry is that mTOR is too constantly activated, it's not because of dietary protein, because most people don't eat a lot of protein. It's because of the, I would say, the starches and sugars elevating the insulin. And so to ignore insulin, if we're focusing on mTOR, is absolutely laughable. And I think just, well, yeah, I don't know how it's justified. Anyone who believes inhibiting mTOR is good for longevity must somehow reconcile that insulin stimulates mTOR more than dietary protein does. And people are eating a diet that is spiking their insulin much more. And moreover, Dom, if you and I ate a protein load, our amino acids are up and down and generally they're going to be cleared within about an hour-ish, right? Or, or, or so. Yeah. Um, insulin, depending on what we eat and depending on how insulin sensitive we are, insulin can be elevated for three hours, for even four hours. So multiples longer than amino acids are going to be elevated in response to a protein-heavy meal. So anyway, that's my kind of riffing on that, that I think we have to look at insulin before we ever worry about protein. Um, but now with regards to protein quality, yeah, um, I am unabashedly an advocate of animal proteins simply because of the assurance that you're, you're going to get everything you need. Uh, there, there's no need to worry, am I getting the right mix of amino acids? The moment you go to plant-sourced proteins, you do have to ask, am I getting everything? Now, Stuart Phillips, um, who is kind of the expert on muscle protein synthesis, he has found that if you just go to the base amino acids from plants and animals and load a human with those, their ability to promote muscle protein synthesis is equal. So there's nothing inherently problematic about the amino acids from a plant. It's just, are you going to get all of the proper mix of amino acids? Mm. And are you getting it in the kind of cleanest, most absorbable form? And you noted there, it has been confirmed that some plant source protein supplements are very high in metals <clears throat> and they can be elevated. They can have higher levels of oxalates and um, phytic acids, things, yeah. molecules that actually inhibit amino acid absorption. So my thoughts on animal protein are that if a person is, primarily relying so on plant protein. If a person's primarily relying on plant protein for their dietary protein, then they should make an attempt to consume it the way our ancestors would have, depending on who our ancestors are. Um, but, but like, for example, throughout um, Asia, you know, a culture that has been relying on plant protein in the form of soy for, you know, since time immemorial, I, I or even instances of communities in South America, um, uh, they would ferment the plant protein. And so I, th and, and we know that fermentation mm -hmm. enhances absorption in part because it removes some of these um, absorption inhibiting molecules yeah. like oxalates mm -hmm. and, and phytic acids. So my view on it is if a person's going to be relying on plant protein, then make every attempt to focus on a fermented source of plant protein, whether it is tofu that's fermented um, for example, or whether it's a protein supplement from plants that 
has gone through a process of fermentation, if there is such a thing. In that case, I have very little reservation with it. I still believe animal proteins are ultimately better, but even still in that case, if it's gone through a fermentation process, I believe it's removed some of these problematic molecules and now you're left with more of what you actually want, which is just the the amino acids. Yeah. For people that are listening to this, that want to be more plant centric in their approach, are there uh, a few plant proteins that you would refer? Uh, Cause I, I get this question asked a lot. So it'd be <laughs> good to direct them to this podcast. Uh, are, are there, are there, you know, two or three plant-based proteins that you would kind of direct people to? I mean, you mentioned the fermented. Yeah. yeah. Tofu well, like Dom, that. this is, um, I, I'll be delicate in answering this. <laughs> so I'm unaware, I'm unaware of any, um, uh, plant protein supplement that has that comes from a fermented source. Now, I, I, I say that I'm delicate in answering this because I, um, full disclosure, am a co-founder of a meal replacement company, and we're we're actually in the process of bringing to market a fermented source uh-huh. um, okay. for these very reasons. It's just that there's not been something that's done it quite right. So, um, yeah. Anyway, I, I'm unaware. Need will be met. Yeah. So, well, and going back to animal-based proteins, um, are there any particular sources that you think are ideal that we should uh, include, or I guess more importantly, not exclude from our diet? I know there's a lot of discussion around animal saturated fat driving up certain lipid biomarkers like LDLC or ApoB mm-hmm. and things like mm-hmm. that. So maybe maybe some thoughts on what you feel uh, are animal-based proteins that people should be including. Yeah. Well, in fact, it's appropriate that you mention fats because my view on animal protein is that I believe it should come with fat. Uh, yeah. We know that in humans, if you give a human a load of, of protein, even like among the best, like egg white, and then you measure the amino acid um, uptake and muscle protein synthesis as a result of that, it will be significant, of course. But if you couple that protein with fat, we absorb the protein better and Mm -hmm. we have greater muscle protein synthesis. But part of the reason we absorb it better is through the actions of bile. Um, The bile acids Uh in the stomach, in the intestines, we always look at bile as only being relevant to fatty acid uh, or or rather lipid digestion and then subsequent absorption because it will separate all the fat out. Um, it's it's through the gut, yeah. emulsify mm-hmm. it. Yep, just to mm-hmm. enable all the enzymes to get at the lipid better. Yeah. But we also uh, bile acids also accelerate and facilitate proteolytic enzymes in the intestines as well. This is why when I hear someone who says, "Well, I can't take whey," and you know, whey protein is you know, like maybe the single best um, protein mm-hmm. source um, for humans, um, but they'll say, "I can't have a whey-based shake; it upsets my stomach." and the number of times I have seen this happen is so much, you know, the anecdotes just keep stacking where I will say, well, what if you mix a little bit of fat in there, either a little bit of, you know, warmed butter or a little bit of cream, um, then how, and they will try this and sure enough, their digestion problem is resolved. It's Mm -hmm. because in nature, I don't think there's an exception to this. I'm unaware of one in nature. There is no such thing as a protein that does not come with fat. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that exists. We in our in our hubris, thinking we know more than than the gods, you know, to invoke kind of ancient Greece here, mm-hmm. um, we we've pulled them apart, and that's partly born mm-hmm. from our fear of fat. 
which touches on a part of your question that I haven't really addressed yet, but um, it's our, we have a fear of fat and that has led us yeah. to take the protein from the fat, dump the fat and only focus on the protein. That is not how nature intended it. We are supposed, mm -hmm. those are together for a reason. And that's one of the reasons why one of my dietary pillars is don't fear fat. Fat will come with these best sources of protein. Fat comes with that beef. It comes with those eggs. It comes with that, that whey, you know, in that dairy. Mm -hmm. That's how we should eat it. We will absorb it better. And the muscle protein synthesis response to fat and protein mm -hmm. is significantly greater than to that protein alone. Now, and then with regards to the fats, there is this is such a contentious area, of course. My view on dietary fat is if it comes from an animal or if it comes from a fruit, like coconut, avocado, olive, you know, not from the seed, um, but if it comes from the flesh of a fruit, and from an animal, those are our ancestral fats. Humans have been eating them since time immemorial. That's how we should continue to eat them. And if someone um, notes that they adopted a diet that was higher in animal fats, but you know lower in refined starches and sugars, and that their LDL went up a little, I would say, well, what about your triglyceride to HDL ratio? Because that's actually a better predictor of heart disease. If your triglyceride to HDL ratio has gone down, in other words, lower triglycerides, higher HDL, then I actually jokingly tell the person congratulations because they're probably going to live longer. One of the mm -hmm. inconvenient truths of longevity research is that a lot of it shows that the people with the highest LDL levels live the longest. And we know that as LDL gets lower and lower, risk of severe infection skyrockets risk of blood-based cancers goes up, risk of even Alzheimer's disease goes up. I think that was the Shanghai longitudinal study that found that. So mm -hmm. if someone has high LDL, but a low triglyceride to HDL ratio, I am inclined to give them a high five. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I know that, yeah, it's definitely a, a point of contention in the lipid community, um, often citing the Mendelian randomization trials and uh, and then ApoB, which correlates, and then LP, little a. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's sort of, and I think we do not, at this point in time, there's not enough data to uh, on people who are following low-carb diets. It's kind of like a new thing. And But I could say from the context of the world of epilepsy, where people are put on a ketogenic diet for decades, uh, there does not appear to be an atherogenic risk. And I think, I mean, you're talking about people that are 80, 90% yep. fat. So I think that's an important, important aspect. Uh, so with protein sources, you'd recommend whey. And what about beef? I mean, you think beef uh, versus chicken versus other, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. other plant, other yeah, uh, yeah. animal-based protein sources. So there's sort of some pushback on, on red meat, you know, being a... Uh, a risk factor for things like colon cancer or right. other things, but I get that or with the heme iron associated with, with red meat. Uh, and I have, I eat a lot of red meat, but I've backed off a little bit and kind of transitioned more occasionally chicken, but I have Turkey. I usually don't eat that much chicken, but we have Turkey. Turkey has been around for like hundreds of years, people eating it, whereas chicken, not, not so much. And not I that don't, I do it for that I, reason. I, no, I just I like agree. Turkey. Yeah. No, no. In fact, that I think you've touched on something that I have almost laughed at sometimes, which is our obsession with chicken. Because a hundred years ago, we didn't eat chicken. You know, chicken was a fantastically yeah, yeah. Uh, Christopher Christopher Ramsden at the NIH 
has 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 done his best to kind of quantify what is the consumption, what are the eating patterns with regards to meat and the fats that come from those meats. And chicken was this minuscule part of the meat that we used to eat. And now it has become the single most commonly consumed meat, all because it's so low fat. We used to yeah. keep our chickens around for their eggs. And then it was this kind of fear yeah. of fat that drove us to eat more chicken meat. But you're right. Turkeys, we never kept turkeys around for the eggs. We ate them. So I, I'm generally forever. Yeah. We got wild right. turkeys running around and, and, and I again, gravitate. Ate, I just like the, the taste of turkey better too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah. bet it's because it's a little fattier, um, but that's certainly how I, like I feel. The, the dark meat. Yeah. But you don't hear a lot about people eating turkey. It's like when I, you know, during Thanksgiving, I just buy a bunch of huge turkeys and putting in the freezer. You know, it's yeah, just, we yeah, cook the right. whole bird, you know, with the with the bones and everything. Whereas just chicken is just like, I mean, you know, there's a big push to switch from beef to chicken. And I mean, we go to chicken like fairs and things like that. And it's like the 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 amount of hybridization oh, and yeah. odd oh, yeah. forms of, of chicken. I mean, it's just like a whole breeding experiment in, in progress, you know, to build bigger breasted birds and and birds mm -hmm. that can barely walk and i mean we see it you know in our farming community here um but um but yeah, yeah i'm not, well, I'm not in putting general, down chicken but i i think people yeah. recognize beef <laughs> and, yeah well that my, my view is any meat is going to be good um and generally you're going to get all the amino acids you want but i actually i put chicken at the bottom that I would put any meat, I believe, is a superior source of ultimate and like more more complete nutrition, is is going to be better than chicken. Uh, so, which which is frustrating because of course chicken's so easy to eat. like as a dad, my kids want chicken more than anything, and I'm always trying to like insert some kind of beef, yeah. especially for my girls. Um, I want them to get that iron. Um, but even still, I would stack any meat as being better than chicken, but I'm also fine with chicken. I would just say maybe make sure that it's not too lean because again, fat helps the digestion of the protein. Yeah. I, yeah. That's, you know, I don't, I teach the whole GI section and really have to revisit it. The, uh, the bile acids to facilitate, yeah. Protein digestion, things like that. I mean, I usually talk about yeah fat being packaged in the chylomicrons and actually how some mm -hmm. MCT fats can go directly to the hepatic portal vein and actually yep. to yep. the liver. Uh, I know we're kind of coming up on time, but I do have a, just a few questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be, you know, we talked a lot about insulin resistance um, and we touched upon, you know, ways to reverse it. Um, but what are your thoughts on just, you know, people that are on a carbohydrate based diet, so, sort of the idea how they should go about carbohydrate management and, and then time restricted feeding your thoughts on that. Like I tend to eat, I do the opposite of what you're supposed to do. I kind of, some days I'll, I under eat during the day and overeat grossly overeat at night. And if I don't yeah. do that, I lose weight. So I know you know, eating less at night or shifting more is supposed to be better by all metrics. And if you eat at night, you're more likely to gain weight. But I actually, for me, that's a positive thing because if I don't <laughs> eat at night, I, my, my weight slips and I start to lose actually muscle. So yeah. some thoughts on that. And then just yeah. general, like not carbohydrate management, but just weight loss isn't, I mean, we teach what we teach is basically insulin resistance is purely a function of you know, body weight and it's all calories in calories out. So I know it's like a lot of, quite, but you know, you know, top, you know, just kind of 30,000 yeah, foot yeah. view on carb management and just, you know, body weight and, and then mm -hmm. time restricted feeding. 
Yeah, yeah. So I'll start with that last one first. So with time-restricted feeding, you're right to note that in the human studies, people who have an earlier eating window appear to be more metabolically, uh, it's more metabolically beneficial. So eating, you know, for example, breakfast and lunch appears to be better than lunch and dinner. Now, as much as like you, I admit that and I acknowledge that research. Um, and there's a lot of nuance to that that I found fascinating. It's also just very difficult. I have a family and I don't want to be sitting around dinner um, with my family. Like last night, we're all eating. And if I'm just sitting there looking at my wife and kids while they're eating because I'm fasting yeah. through dinner, no, forget about it. You know, I'm I'm a family man and eating dinner is a very important social moment. So I'm not going to do that. But what I have found is, Dom, when I would try to do time-restricted feeding, similar to you, may, probably because I didn't manage it well, but I would get hungry and I would eat a lot in that later evening, dinner, and then for the next several hours, and it would have a dramatic impact on my sleep. Yep. Um, I, I, I have found that the single most important variable that will determine whether I sleep well or not is how full I am when I go to bed. More than yep. anything else, more than light exposure, more than any kind of activity, mm -hmm. if I go to bed on a really full stomach, I will be hot. My heart, my HRV will be low. I will not sleep well. And I'm waking up and I'm miserable the next day. And so if mm -hmm. what I've tried to do to help offset that, I still fast through breakfast. I just have never really, since I've been an adult at least, I'm not really hungry in the morning. Um, it's just easy for me to kind of sip on some tea or something else through the morning. But I try to get a full lunch. I like to try to stack it at my lunch. And yeah. then mm -hmm. a more modest dinner. And, and I have found that that helps so much. It helps control cravings. And it allows me to kind of go to bed on a relatively emptier stomach or more digested. So I eat a big lunch. So it's nothing through breakfast, big lunch, a more modest dinner. And then I just, and then I just am done at dinner. And it's much easier yeah. for me to be done at dinner and not snack into the evening when I've had a bigger lunch. So that that's my view, my personal application with time-restricted feeding. And then with regards to weight loss, insofar as I have the parrot of the view that insulin resistance starts in the fat cells, I believe that should be a primary point of addressing insulin resistance back to the fat cells. And basically, it's when the fat cell becomes too hypertrophic. You know, someone can be gaining fat mass through two different mechanisms. It can either be that the number of fat cells is relatively static, but the size of the fat cells getting ever larger, hypertrophy, or in some people, largely due to a genetic tendency to go one way or the other, but this is a minority of people. There are individuals who even throughout adulthood have the genetic potential to continue to make new fat cells, and that's getting fat through a process called hyperplasia. And in that case, the fat cells stay very modestly sized, but they're, of course, just much more abundant. Well, that person paradoxically has an almost limitless potential to store fat. These, these are the people who go who get fat through hyperplasia who can become fantastically obese, 500 pounds, 600 pounds, yeah. and, and they don't become insulin resistant, and their insulin levels stay quite modest. However, on the other side, where the majority of people fall, their number of fat cells is set. So if the fat cells are storing more and more energy in them due to an abundance of energy and elevated insulin, that's important though. Those two signals are both essential to storing, to promoting fat storage. You need abundant energy 
and elevated insulin. In the absence mm -hmm. of one or the other, they cannot get fat. You can eat mm -hmm. all the energy in the world, and if insulin is down, you cannot store it as fat. You'll be wasting it as ketones. Your metabolic rate will be higher. Um, if it gets too high, then you'll even be peeing out glucose. You cannot store energy as fat if insulin is low. But of course, if insulin's high, it must have energy to store. And so there has yeah. to be sufficient calories. So yeah. there, those two become the strategy for shrinking a fat cell. So it is the hypertrophic fat cell that becomes insulin resistant in order to prevent further growth. That's why free fatty acids start to go up. It's the hypertrophic fat cell that becomes pro-inflammatory in order to correct hypoxia and stimulate new capillary growth to those hypertrophic fat cells. Mm -hmm. So some of those inflammatory cytokines will promote new vascular growth. Some are just promoting inflammation and stimulating insulin resistance. So yeah. the strategy has to be to take that big hypertrophic fat cell and shrink it. And you can yeah. shrink it through two different ways, low energy and low insulin or, or low insulin. They're not the same, although one, you know, they tend to bleed into each other, but someone can look at their weight loss journey and think, I got to shrink my fat cells. And they have two steps they can take. They can say, I can either start with lowering my energy or I can start with lowering my insulin. I believe one's better than the other. If someone takes their first weight loss journey or fat cell shrinking step, and it's with a low energy approach, usually they're going to start um, fighting hunger. If energy is coming down and they're still insulin resistant, then as they just start cutting back energy, then the availability of energy in the blood will start to drop a little bit because insulin's still high enough in them. And it's going to be hard to shrink the fat cell. They're going to get hungrier and hungrier, and usually hunger wins. So rather than take a low energy approach for the first step, my recommendation is to shrink fat cells. Take the low insulin step. And the low mm -hmm. insulin step is kind of what we've been alluding to, which is, you know, control your carbohydrates. You know, don't, don't get starches and sugars that come from bags and boxes with barcodes. Focus on whole fruits and vegetables. You eat them, don't drink them prioritize protein, don't fear fat. Those, but if you're hungry, eat. Um, there's, no, yeah. there's no hunger that has to come into this. And so it becomes much more sustainable. And as insulin is down, free, uh, lipolysis is activated and the person's mobilizing fat more, they're burning fat more, they're converting it to ketones, which they use for an energy. And they are just dumping from the body in the form of in the breath and in the urine. The ketones are energetic molecules that are just wasted. They don't have to be burned or stored in that case. So it just makes so it easier. That brings up a good point. So, uh, you know, how many calories are wasted in the, the context? I know that, uh, I think I looked into this one time and I think it was, uh, I forget the amount of ketones that were collected in a 24 hour urine collected, collection in a fasted subject. It was not insignificant. Like it was, right. I think in some subjects it was, well, it wasn't like huge, but it was maybe like uh, in larger subjects up to 200 calories or 250. Yeah, but even like dumb, about even that's calories. just urine. And then you think yeah. about the ketones that aren't being captured in the breath, yeah. uh -huh. right? Yeah. Like yeah. that is another. So altogether, Dom, when you, this is why I say a ketogenic state uh, is, is a metabolic advantage that this is just conveniently ignored because you are yeah. both wasting energy in the form of ketone excretion through breath and urine, which can be to the tune of a few hundred calories potentially, and overall metabolic rate is elevated. David Ludwig, even Kevin Hall, 
and uh, have found that uh, David Ludwig in particular found that a metabolic yeah. rate can be up by almost 300 calories a day. So when we combine these, not only the higher metabolic rate and the wasting of energetic molecules in the form of ketone excretion, we have several hundred calories now of a wiggle room where if, if we're eating mm -hmm. these calories, this is how someone could still be losing weight and not have to go hungry because they can eat as much as they want. If insulin's yeah. down, the body's just in a, is so inclined to be in a state of fat burning. Suffice well, it to I, say, I challenge the fat that, cells. Yeah. I challenge that they could eat as much as they want, but I would, um, because I do think calories matter, but what I think, what were your, so, I so think do I. your main, I do too. I okay. I think your main point is, uh, when you eat that way, you tend to auto-regulate, uh, kind of into the model that David Ludwig has developed mm -hmm. when you eat low carb or to the extreme of ketogenic that produces, uh, or, or, uh, regulates various counter-regulatory mechanisms that play a huge role in appetite suppression, appetite moderation. One could argue that a very low-carb diet is hypopalatable and maybe also hypersatiating too. So, mm -hmm. you know, I know if you put a lot of, you know, sugary stuff in front of me, especially at nighttime, I'm going to overeat it to the point that I'm full. And even I remember, you know, even being, you know, uh, satiated, but still hungry, you know, in, in that mm -hmm. context of when I was eating that way. And I think that's a big point. But then I guess when you, you know, you did talk about uh, you when your insulin is low, you can't gain weight, you can't put on fat, and I was going to stop you there. But then I thought about type one diabetes. So I mean, that's a pathological yeah. condition where you have people eating massive amounts of they're very hyper caloric, but they're still losing weight, uh, presumably they're losing adipose tissue, but maybe they're also insulin's kind of anabolic, maybe more catabolic, but probably losing some muscle too. But you have a scenario nonetheless of what you just brought up where insulin is low and yet you're getting surplus amount of calories and still losing weight. So, yep. and I think, you know, a less, much less extreme version of that, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm talking about the type one diabetic is that you're mimicking some of that naturally mimicking some of that in a, a ketogenic diet or a very low carb diet state where you're leveraging that low, low insulin facilitating fat oxidation, but also that's, and, you know, some degree of metabolic enhancement, but you're coupling that with, um, with appetite regulation. So I think that's the real benefit. And I think it's multifactorial. Yeah. Well, that's um, why I say yeah. if someone is controlling carbs and prioritizing protein and not being afraid of fat, they can, when I say they can eat as much as they want, I mean, there's no need to be counting calories. There's no need to be hungry. If someone's hungry, well then eat. But as you noted, yeah. satiety and David Ludwig has shown that satiety is so much better um, in, in, a, in a generally a, a carbohydrate restricted state yeah. that there's just, they're disinclined to, to eat in excess. I think that's true in like 90% of people, but you have people where their, um, their reason for eating. So there, it's almost like they need like a nutritional psychiatrist, right? You yeah. know, oh, they, they eat yeah. for different reasons. So they're eating even when they're not hungry to fulfill a certain need. Uh, but I think the important aspect, you know, the important component is that when you do eliminate those starchy foods, sugary foods, then you restore your metabolism and your eating behaviors to where it should be. And then you kind of auto-regulate 
your own caloric consumption. But then you have subjects, you know, that I, and I fielded a lot of emails where people are like, I've been on a ketogenic diet. It didn't work for me. I didn't lose any weight. And you kind of ask them if you probe a little bit more and ask them what they're eating, you know, they're eating like nut butters and, yeah. <laughs> you know, macadamia and, and sort of these. So if they gravitated more towards like a, a carnivore diet or just, you know, eliminated, uh, you know, nut butters and nuts and maybe some dairy too, then you'd probably start to get better. And, but many people are of the opinion that if you just eat ketogenic or low carb, then you're automatically going to lose weight and maintain your weight, which is the case for the majority of people. But there's definitely people who can, it's very easy to get a man, a, an increased, you know, surplus calories on a ketogenic yeah, yeah, diet. So yeah, that's yeah, well said. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day from the lab, the research, important research you're doing in the lab uh, to share your insight and knowledge on a topic that is central and probably the most important topic in metabolic health, which is insulin resistance and insulin signaling. And yeah, um, yeah, we look forward to hopefully having you as a speaker again at Metabolic Health Summit and maybe doing a part two on this podcast too, because uh, I only touched that. on about a quarter of my questions I had for you, but <laughs> yeah, well, I'd love it. Dom, I have such a, such a respect for everything you've contributed to the, to the field of metabolism and ketone metabolism in particular. And I, I, I loved every minute of it. This was great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Metabolic Link. Uh, if you're interested in this podcast and it was relevant content for you, please share, subscribe, like, and leave a comment. We appreciate you listening.